Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the social index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got George Corbin. He is a board director at Edgewell Personal Care which is a public company, as well as the COO of Onriva, which is the next generation AI-powered traveled marketplace. But on the show today, we talk about his career path, which includes early geology stint into consulting through the boom and bust of the dot-com era to then becoming chief digital officer eventually at Marriott and leading their digital transformation that encompassed going from $1 billion to $14 billion driven through digital channels, and then ultimately to Mars and then on to board leadership and board governance in his current role as well. You don't want to miss this show because we're going to talk a lot about his lessons learned through leading digital transformation, what that means for the marketing function, as well as marketing leaders and how to lead through those digital transformations. We also talk about boards and how he ended up as a board member, what boards are thinking about, what's hot or not. We try a lightning round session on board topics and much, much more. You don't want to miss this episode with my new friend, George Corbin. Well, George, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alan. It's good to be here. <laughs> I don't even know. I'm just going to ask because we usually start out with these little personal stories. And this one sounds like a doozy. Apparently, you had a wrestling match with an octopus. 
What was this about? <laughs> well, you know, you asked if I had anything in, in, interesting, and that, that that one certainly came to mind. Um, so I would say uh, I would say two things. One, uh, yes, I once had a wrestling match with an octopus. Two, I lost that match. <laughs> I was actually uh, I was uh, I was about twelve years old, and uh, I was uh, swimming around, and I happened to be a fan of octopus and at the time, certainly eating octopus, and I saw one in about ten feet of water. So I dove down. He was uh, curled up under a rock. I dove down, pushed the rock aside. I reached for him. He reached for me, and he was quicker on the draw. So I scrambled up to the surface with octopus attached to arm and uh, struggled to get you know, to, to get some kind of a grip on him, which is absolutely impossible with an octopus, by the way. Trying to dig in nails and, and, and to, to no avail, I finally had to call out for help to a friend of mine, and he was several hundred feet away, and he just said, ah, he's just kidding, until they saw this lump appear on my shoulder above the waterline. He hopped in a boat, he quickly paddled over, and the two of us uh, eventually pried it off, and I would say it was just in time, uh, because I had bright purple suction cup tracks all the way up my shoulder, going up to my uh, mouth and nasal passages by the time we pulled them off. Holy cow. So um, <laughs> I would say he he won the match on a one-on-one basis, but I tag-teamed in somebody, and uh, ultimately he was delicious. <laughs> I was going to ask, did you throw him back? But no, 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 we, we ate that one. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, f- so for those out there listening, don't try to grab the octopus. <laughs> so, I definitely have a friend with you if you do. Well, I haven't, I haven't heard a story like that before. So um, that's, that is uh, quite the story um, to start off with. Let's transition to marketing and, and your career and, and career path. Um, so beyond 12 years old and wrestling octopus, when did you, when did you start down this path in marketing? I started learning marketing. I will say literally in a trench. So I had graduated from college and my, my undergrad degree is in geology, uh, I think like, like all marketers. And I joined a, uh, a geotech startup. So they did geotechnical surface, uh, services, you know, lots of subsurface work. You know? And basically uh, we were entering, a, we were a new company entering a new market and we would do things like literally dig trenches among other things to basically go in and, and remediate underground contamination for a variety of commercial clients, oil companies and, and others. And so since it was a startup, uh, I was the technical expert on how this work gets done. And I would characterize it as, again, dealing with contamination, right? So I would wear a respirator by day and then essentially learned how to wear a marketing hat at night. Because as a startup, you've got you to win the work and then you got to deliver the work. And I, and I had to do both. I did that for a few years, decided I really needed to go to business school. I needed to learn more about this business stuff. Marketing was was one component of that. I came out, I went to uh, work for a, a consulting firm called Carney. And with that, we actually ended up spinning out one division of Carney and I went with the spin out. And again, I had a bit of a startup situation where we had to go win clients. Uh, we had to develop a brand. We had to develop collateral. We had basically, we had we needed a marketing, a marketing strategy and a marketing plan. So Again, I find myself doing that stuff, doing the uh, work by day and the marketing by, by night. Along came this thing called the internet, right? And so around 98, 99, I said, I, 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 can't, I can't miss this. This is, this is huge. Something big is happening here. 
So I went to work for a company that was uh, variously known, depending on where you were in its evolution, as IXL and Scient and, and ultimately Sapient and Sapient Nitro now, I think, is the current iteration of that. But it was early Internet days. And I was there through the dot-com boom, the dot-com bust. And they were there for the early days, you know, 99 to 2001, the early days of this thing called uh, SEO, right? This company called Google was, was looked like they were actually going to replace AltaVista. And so my job was, look, you work for all these corporate clients. And it's like, how do you get these companies found online? Uh, and then internally, when we went through the dot-com uh, bust, how do we then actually market ourselves better? And this is where, at the time, it was termed guerrilla marketing. I would term it more like desperation marketing, which is you're losing business hand over fist. The entire industry was cratering, right? So how do you stay afloat during that? So how do you get really scrappy and then intensely focused? The big contrast then is I went from that situation. I got the call from people who had, as the, as the company imploded, I got the call from folks who used to work for me, and they had gone over to Marriott. And they said, you need to come over and see what's going on here. They're really just kind of getting their feet under them with regard to digital. And they were taking it all in-house. And so I went and joined them. And we ended up building Marriott.com was still rather smallish then. So we ended up building that out. And at the time at the company, marketing was lots of traditional out-of-home advertising. And we had no digital marketing capability. And so I built that. I built digital marketing as really the con the, the funnel conversion engine into Marriott.com. So had to build out search, had to build out paid, had to build out media optimization, personalization, affiliate marketing, merchandising. None of that stuff existed. And so we had to build that up. And in the end, you know, this, we grew the site from a billion to 14 billion by the time I left. I left, I was there about 15 years, to 14 billion. And these sales through digital had gone from just like a fraction, like 3% of what was then a much smaller company's sales to 42% of a much larger company's sales was now coming through digital uh, channels. And so roughly the year I left or the year before, before I left, marketing had, was driving over $5 billion of trackable, measurable revenue through our channels. I had, uh, had it was offered a great opportunity then at Mars Incorporated, and you know they like so many in the consumer packaged goods space were making this move more into digital, right? They had been a, a tremendously successful private company, thirty-seven billion dollars, um, heavily B to B to C. So while they would do consumer advertising, all the sales, uh, all the distribution was through B to B channels, and so. How do you shift from a certain type of marketing model and marketing playbook into one in which digital platforms take center stage, right? And so a lot of work there, a lot of sort of innovative stuff going on in places like China, which is part of my team. And that in turn led to Edgewell Personal Care reaching out to me. So Edgewell makes brands like um, uh, Sheck and Wilkinson Store Razors. They do sunscreen like uh, Hawaiian Tropic and Banana Boat. They do uh, Playtex. They've got about 30, 30 consumer brands. They too were undergoing, like Mars, this big shift that this this needed shift to digital because there was a heavy amount of insurgency happening in the space. Digital upstarts coming in, and so they need to move to much more digital and data driven marketing and and D to C. And now more recently, in addition, I while well, I am I am uh, I remain on the board with Edgewell. I've also recently taken on a role with a startup. They're they're uh, they're an AI travel platform called Onriva. I'm the chief operating officer over there, which includes product and marketing. They are an integrated part of 
of this. And so as, as always, you know, you sort of look at how these things interplay and have to execute. You got to fire multiple cylinders to ensure that, you know, marketing is delivering the absolute maximum impact that it can. I mean, it's quite the journey, frankly, and you've led some rather massive digital transformations like Marriott, Mars, as you mentioned, advising and, and supporting from a board seat, Edgewell. A lot of CMOs that are listening to this, a lot of marketers that are listening to this are trying to drive transformation themselves. Like you've done it at the highest level, frankly. Like what are some keys of getting it right? I had an aha moment uh, several years ago. The short version is this. Um, it's the operating model, stupid. That was the words that came into my head. And, and, and here was the context. So when I was building out the uh, digital at Marriott, this is when I came to realize I kept, I kept running into this buzzsaw of internal resistance. And here we were at the time we were growing, we were contributing 55% of the company's growth when this sort of came to me. And I realized, and yet I could not get things like headcount approved. I couldn't get budget approved. I could, there was all these things that were standing in the way. It's like, here's the one part of the business that, that in that particular year that was driving growth, right? Others were actually having net negative impact on growth. It was a tough year. And that's when I realized it's not that we lacked a good strategy or, or a clear roadmap for this transformation or a compelling value proposition. We had all those things. It was the company's operating model. It was not fit for purpose. And it's really, it's, it's like the conundrum of any company that has been doing business a certain way for years, in this case, decades. And I encounter this everywhere. This isn't just a Marriott thing. You encounter this in any big company. And so really what's working against you if you're trying to drive a transformation is that the company has been perfectly designed to swim. It's like a shark. It is smooth and it is sleek and it is damn good at what it does, but you need it to fly. <laughs> exactly. And that was the case we had here. And so the outcome of this sort of aha moment, uh, when I looked across where the obstruction was coming from, I realized actually there's three architectures that you need to change. So if anybody listening to this is trying to push through transformation and encountering this, this you know, the situation like I did, encountering resistance, I say, you've really got three architectures you need to change. The first one is strategy and business model. And this is usually where people start. It usually start with strategy. It's like our customers are doing this. We need to do this too, right? In order to be there for them. So strategy and business model is how we go to market and how we make money. So Yes, this is the customer strategy. This is the product strategy. And again, everybody usually starts there and thinks about that. And then they start running into the problems. Well, you've got to go and you've got to change your profit model often. You have to go in and change how you do customer acquisition and marketing. And sometimes that is harder than you think. And you encounter more resistance, even from within a marketing function, than you would expect. You may have to change manufacturing and supply in your distribution channel. So that's sort of strategy and business model, right? How you go to market, how you make your money. The next one, is uh, the next architecture is this sort of your culture, talent, and mindset. This is how do we make our people and our company's culture, and everybody holds culture sacred, which is like, how do we make this our engine of going from 1x to 10x or, or even 100x growth? And that's a very different, what you have to rewire yourself, right? It's certainly in the type of talent you have, and you know you may need to bring in fresh talent or retool existing talent. It's how you organize. It's how you set your KPIs. If you have a culture that's one of risk aversion, which many large companies do have, how do you overcome that? How do you provide 
safety and experimentation, right? How do you provide trust? And then the third architecture, and often this is the one that when people talk digital transformation, this is the first and sometimes the only one they go to is technology and data. Well, we have to change our technology and data. I put it last deliberately. Because you've got to get the first two things right before you start talking about bits and bytes and, and, and the pipes. So, I mean, obviously, technology and data, it, this has to enable the new business model, right? You just, yes, you've got to activate intelligence and activate data. So you, you need infrastructure and APIs and cloud and sure. But you've got to start. And actually, here's a actually Steve, if, of all people, Steve, Steve Jobs said this. He said, you have to start with the customer experience and work backwards to the technology. It's smart. I mean, it, it reminds me too of um, you're old enough to remember the days of CRM implementations. <laughs> Some of the younger marketers forget that that was even a thing. And it was, you know, like the day we would throw CRM systems at. And I, I think I lived at one company, I lived through three different implement, like multi million dollar implementations of CRM systems because we didn't start with the strategy. Like, what do we want to do? Like, why were we doing this? What? business model to your point are we trying to to build for ourselves exactly and and you know and and for and for marketers in particular because i because marketers i think occupy a unique position in being able to drive a transformation but also sometimes they are at a particular disadvantage because people don't think of marketing that way so if you've so if there's any you know marketing leaders out there who are trying to drive this and they're struggling, I mean not just think about the three architectures, but here's just a few here's a few pointers. Maybe these these will be helpful. Here is something that you kind of you own this story, and the story is you can you start with the customer. The customer is a great equalizer. You can go up against people who will want to debate uh, whether we do X or whether we do Y, but whoever has the insight and the data about the customer can drive that conversation. So we encounter all kinds of resistance when we're trying to build, you know, a D2C channel and when we're trying to build this, this digital marketing channel. So we use data and then we just did product testing, you know, multiple iterations to show that the customer was shopping and buying differently and we needed to meet them where they now were, right? So that was one, start with the customer, use that. And next, I'd say create a real urgency about the problem. Next, and this is another one that proved uh, very helpful that I think marketers have, have innate skills at doing this, build a very vivid vision of the destination. And I don't mean these namby-pamby vision statements about we're going to be the number one X in the Y industry. I mean specifically to say, if you are doing business with our company as a customer in three years, this is how it's going to feel. And you show that experience. When we when we did that, and also we actually came up with a with a four minute video that showed that vision. So, Merritt, you're a traveler. Here's what you go through. It brought such clarity and it built such energy and enthusiasm across the enterprise. Very powerful. That helps you to start as a marketer to actually create a movement to start to create this coalition of the willing. Right? They believe in the cause and they want to be a part of it. And then you build from there. That's what snowballs. Super helpful advice um, for anybody uh, leading any kind of change is to visualize the the change and help actually other people see it. To your point, like literally a video of of what this experience is going to look like makes so much sense because it just it takes all the misinterpretation out of the game, right? Like you can see it, everyone understands it. Clarity, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. Exactly, and 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 that gets lost sometimes if you're coming in with 
And look, I'm a big PowerPoint guy. I mean, I was, I was at, at that time, I was number, I was Mr. 150 page deck and this just changes like, no, we've, people have to feel this. So let's give something that they can feel and they can completely relate to at any level in the organization. And you would watch, you'd watch the, the behavior change. I remember walking into a room and everything started with a bunch of executives kind of sitting back in their chairs with their arms crossed over their chest, right? And just kind of looking skeptically. And by the end, four minutes later, everybody was smiling and leaning forward. And I said, is this the experience we want to have? And they all said, yes. And I tell you, doors open after that. It's a good tool for marketers. And again, marketers are uniquely positioned to bring this to life. Well, let's talk about boards. And you're, you mentioned uh, earlier, you're a member of the board at uh, Edgewell Personal Care. What was the process to getting a board position? There's a lot of CMOs out there interested in serving on boards. And you know, what was your process? And for clarity, was this your first one as well? Yes. And so I've been quite fortunate. It was my first one and it's for a good sized public company as well. So my my journey there um, really was this. I think as you probably picked up, you know, di- digital's kind of my thing. That's what I've been doing for the last two decades, and it is now uh, in many for many companies, it's on the board agenda. It's often started as cyber risk, but now as, as they've started to see, there's actually more strategic risk going on here. We're being displaced in certain markets by these companies, these new companies that we don't understand. So there's there has been a real uh, hunger for, in this case, expertise around digital. Now, I would say there is a similar need around marketing too. And I'll, I'll, I, can, I can explain that a little bit more, but really here, I think for anybody it is, how do, you par- how do you package and parlay your expertise, your unique expertise into new use cases at new organizations? So for me, uh, what I mean by that is, my particular strength in all this, regardless of which company I've worked for, because I've now worked across a number of industries, my particular strength, my sort of personal monopoly, if you will, is guiding incumbent companies who are undergoing disruption to get through it and then actually succeed, transform themselves and then come out successful on the other side. And that is something that there's a lot of companies that need. So Edgewell, in this case, they were facing disruption. You know, they're in shaving, they're in skincare. And so there were, they were set upon on multiple sides by these, these sort of new digital D2C insurgents like uh, Harry's and Dollar Shave Club, right? So the shareholders, it was a, uh, an institutional shareholder that said they, they really thought the board needed more expertise and uh, should be added, added, some sort of capability should be added to the board. And so Edgewell's board initiated a director search and, uh, and reached out to me. Uh, and you know, fortunately, I uh, I checked the right boxes, and and the story that I related to them, which is sort of a longer version of what I talked a bit about with with Marriott, uh, apparently resonated on multiple frequencies for them. So, you know, and and what's great is so now at the board level on a regular basis, we're in conversations about, hey, what's changed about consumer habits? What do we need to change about the business model? What capabilities do we need to build here to succeed? We, you get into talk about M&A, you get into uh, talk about uh, uh, strategic risk and all, and having a blast. And the company is um, making a number of changes and is transitioning really well. As you think about marketers and other CMOs and marketing function, like what is the opportunity, maybe broadly speaking, for marketers at the board level? 
Well, I'm certainly biased, and I feel that every board should have a strong marketing expertise there. But I would say two things in particular, and I think marketers are supposed to be about branding. They need to think about how they package their own brand. Companies need two things. One, they're very hungry for growth. And growth should be job number one for any marketer who's worth their pay. So on growth, it's like if you have a track record of driving measurable growth, then you will be in demand, both by to be hired by companies and to be on boards. So if you have something, if you have lessons, if you have a playbook, if you have things like that about driving growth, then again, package that up and make it part of your, your unique narrative. The other thing is the paths to growth have changed. So what worked 10 years ago uh, may not be what works today. And certainly what worked 20 years ago may not work today. Probably doesn't work today. You know, Ports do, parts don't. So that means that marketing has changed and the tools and the technologies have changed and the media and the channels that you used have changed. It's, it's not, you know, marketing is not just about advertising. Any marketer knows that. But this is the type of thing that you also want to bring into your narrative. And if if you haven't sharpened your skills on that, I would say make an effort to do so. So, so that was so hungry for growth. You know, this whole thing about growth was, was one. Um, the other is a lot of companies need to transform their business. They know it. They see it. They're getting underway. And it's it's hard. Look, 70 percent of transformation efforts fail. I won't go into the reasons why, but there's there's several. But ultimately, they need to transform, and that's driven by these sort of external vectors, right? You've got you've got these shifts in customer and consumer behavior and purchase behavior. You've got new channels of distribution. You've got new routes to market. You've got new products coming at a much faster pace with much shorter life cycles, right? All that's going on. That, again, is in the marketer's wheelhouse. They are somewhat uniquely positioned to tackle those things. And so the best marketers are transformation agents. And so if that fits who you are as a marketer, then I think it's it's then about how you uh, start to bundle that up and build that narrative and start getting start getting word out and, and, and getting networked. Well, and you're not alone that you that you feel that marketers should be on the boards. Um, there's a, a lot of marketers that believe that as well. But more importantly, um, uh, an academic that I've spoken to and have done a podcast with, it's been a while. We, we just recorded a new one um, that hasn't released yet, but with Kim Whitler and um, she's at UVA, business school professor, but she actually did a study on boards and looking at you know what percentage of boards have a marketer on them and then also looked at performance of those companies. And, and there is a direct link in her research between having a marketing presence or marketing experience on the board and the, and their performance level. So, it's an interesting observation from her and, and her research, but it, I think it, it just bolsters the idea that what you're saying, you have to have a market orientation. A marketing function is one of the functions that has the, the best chance to have that marketing orientation and why not have them at the board level? Yeah, I agree. I, I actually, I want to go look up that research now because I, I it, it underscores the point. And again, the, too often, you know, what companies and boards will go to is, well, there's disruption and it's because of technology. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's like, it, it, it's actually, it's technology enables things to happen smoother, faster, better, cheaper. And what is that? What is the customer, the end customer's use cases that the technology makes easier? And then focus on those use cases and how to solve those better. Start there. Tech will be part of the answer, but it's not the only answer. 
I'll send you a link after we're done recording today to the to that, and we'll link to it in the show notes for people that are listening as well. You know, board service is very different. You know, and it's very design, right? It's governance versus management. And how did you approach that shift? You know, having gone from you know managing large transformations to now being more in the governance camp, if you will. It is, in fact, uh, an an interesting pivot, and you have to you have to check yourself sometimes. I know I have to check myself sometimes, because the adage is uh, for the board, it's nose in, fingers out. <laughs> so that is, you know, boards govern and advise. They they can advise management, but they really govern the performance of management. They don't manage the company. Uh, the board's primary function is. You've got to act on behalf of shareholders to make sure their interests are being represented. The board also has the job of they hire and fire the CEO, make sure they got a successor lined up, and that the board must understand the risks that are facing the company and ensure that management and the directors are aligned on the plan for tackling those. So with that, what I, what I have uh, found, and I know what, uh, what peers and colleagues uh, have found, first of all, the role for any board is, you know, when you're trying to execrate yourself from trying to manage something to try and govern something, is just ask a lot of questions and make sure that the important ones are not going either unasked or unanswered. You know, I've got a handful that I sort of call my, my, my disruptive five, right? The other is that uh, the board can and does provide advice and counsel. I mean, good good board management relationships are such that management actually values the board's perspectives because, you know, these folks have been around the blocks a few times. And management can choose to take their advice or not, but my experience has been really positive here. Right? Good management is open-minded, they're self-critical, and they're going to listen to to the board and, and kind of incorporate some of their feedback into their plans and strategies and be better as a result. I would say in my personal experience, one other thing I've, I've found really rewarding is I have enjoyed, I mentioned sort of the nose in, fingers out, and I'll, I'll say I've enjoyed a bit of a hybrid role. So given that I've got good depth and breadth on the digital side and actually how you, how you execute this stuff in big companies, I've regularly been invited you know, into the tent to share what I found that works and what doesn't work, you know, for different problems that the companies might be tackling. So for instance, I'll be asked, how did you organize your, your global marketing team? How'd you organize your digital team to technical things? Like how do you do contextual personalization and how should we build the data capability? So, uh, and all those things, I will go in and I'll kind of share perspective, we'll workshop things. And it's finding the balance. It's not be going and telling them what to do by any stretch. It's more like saying, here's what I found works. Here's what doesn't work. Here's some things that, you know, you can consider ad- uh, adapting for your own situation. And then sometimes even things like, hey, we're trying to hire somebody with a uh, with search experience or uh, data experience or e-commerce experience. Do you know anybody? I'm like, yeah, I know. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, I guess one other thing for people contemplating getting getting on a board, I think that there's this bit of this uh, perception of what it's like to serve on a board. I just kind of want to be, make sure you're expe- you've set your own expectations clearly. Boards are now fair, they can be fairly demanding. And so you should expect a time commitment of depending on the company between 150 and 250 hours per year, right? So it might, it might account for 10% of your time and you've got to make sure that your current employer is okay with that. You want to make sure you've got the time for that because there's, um, you know, you got quarterly board meetings, you've got a few other meetings of committee level meetings, uh, throughout the year. Each of those has pre-reads and, you know, you'll get pre-reads, I would say in the uh, that'll range anywhere from 200, and I've got up to 750 pages of pre-read before going into the room. <laughs> so it's not a retirement gig, that's for sure. <laughs> You're going to be working, but it's it, I find it fun and interesting, and and you learn a lot, but you also have the chance to uh, share a lot of your learning and really do see an impact from your perspective. If you've got a good, strong, strategic point of view you will find it will get traction. I appreciate you sharing that because like I, I do hear a lot of people say, well, I, I just really want to get a board position. Like it's a tack on experience, right? But it's a commitment to you, what you're saying. Um, not only a personal commitment, but you know, you got to live into this governance and the, and the role that take it serious that what you're doing for this public company in your case and, and make sure you're doing the, the work um, as true as you can. You are really, I mean, you're digging into some very meaty matters. It is, it is not sort of this, maybe the 1980s perception of this cocktails and country clubs. It's like, not in my experience. <laughs> I thought it would be fun. I've never done this before, so we'll see how it goes. But I thought it'd be fun to do what I call, quote unquote, a lightning round. So I'll give you a topic and you give me a either hot or not and then maybe a short rationale for why it's one or the other. Okay. All right. Let me roll up my sleeves here. And for those that are listening, a hot topic is a topic that boards are discussing. And obviously a not is something that's not in the boardroom right now. So we'll start with the first one, digital marketing. Well, yeah, I think, like I said, it's, it's not hot enough, but it needs to be. And I, my observation is this, the topic of digital marketing comes up obliquely as a conversation about something else. For instance, the board will say, hey, why are we losing share to this new player? Right? We've been doing this for 50 years and these guys have been doing it for five years. How come they're stealing share from us? So we'll start that way. And it's usually because that new player is using like the D2C digital marketing growth handbook. Here's the playbook. Here's the things that you do. And guess what? We're not actually doing those things yet. And so this is one of those digital marketing is The board will always benefit when they learn more granularly about how this stuff works. And you may find as a, as a marketer, sometimes it's better to reposition quote digital marketing because it sounds a little too uh, mystical or too trite and more as sort of growth and performance marketing, right? Start the conversation that way. Next one, 
purpose? Uh, oh, there's a lot going on at there right now. Okay, so I'm going to say at a board level, lukewarm. So it, and it, here's here's why. So boards are definitely now feeling the heat from social transparency, cancellation risk, right? And they want their companies to live up to certain standards. And first off, let's be clear, every company should be clear about its values and therefore its purpose. And then they need to walk that talk in how the company operates day to day. First and foremost, these values must be for the benefit of their own employees, right? You need to, your employees need to see and you need to live this to say, this is what we hold dear, and this is how we will operate to prove it and bring it to life. But corporate purpose does have a risk. You've got roughly, I think I saw from Edelman, like 56% of consumers are saying brands are using like social issues and purpose issues as a marketing ploy. So there's this trust thing, right? So companies, if you're going to go there, you need to be authentic in making the value clear. You need to be careful about the risk in value signaling in your marketing. I think we saw that with the during lockdown. Oh, we're all in this together. Everybody had a we're all in this together uh, ad placement. But man, as soon as things started to change, suddenly it's like, and that's why we're jacking up your price now that things are opening up, right? It's like, hey, wait a minute. I thought we were in this together, right? So it can come across as trendy, pandering, even exploitative. So really, company on purpose must prove that they walk the talk and not just talk. Next one, cyber risk. Hot. Definitely hot. And and the reason is, like, it's a tangible and material risk with lots of corporate horror stories all over the place, right? With ransomware spear phishing, man in the middle attacks. For marketers, marketers really need to think about privacy and security in everything they're going to do that now involves data. But yeah, it's definitely a hot topic. Next one, debt financing. Not something that comes up on this show very often, but I'm just curious. <laughs> Low interest rate environment. I'm curious if it's still a thing. It really depends on your strategy and as a company, what your capital structure is. So for instance, at Edgewell, we use it because we have capacity. We've got a strong and steady cash flow and it aligns with our overall capital allocation strategy. And we've got a board finance committee that I'm on. And so debt financing is always in the consideration set because sometimes it makes sense for us. But I don't know if I would, because things are, are, are you know, just sort of lower interest rates. I think every company needs to be thoughtful to say that the long-term implications of a debt commitment, you've got to be very clear about one, how you're going to pay it down, two, how you're going to make sure that you're generating real value from, from debt versus funding through operations. Diversity and inclusion. Very hot and very much needed. I've experienced firsthand, the more your employees think and look like your customers, the better decisions you're going to make about your products and your marketing. Being on a board, I am. it's very encouraging to see just how much real discussion this is getting at the board level. And I'm seeing not only genuine conversation, but real action happening. So the next one is a, it's an acronym, ESG, but stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. Hot. And kind of like it, it, it's, off, it's now kind of put together uh, on the agenda next to diversity and inclusion. One of the things working now is you know, extreme transparency and visibility, right? Anything a company does is now very visible and through social media, very uh, not only visible, but transmissible. 
And so it is, that's one reason. The other thing is, you know, the forward thinking companies are like, it's also just the right thing to do. All three of these done right can actually improve business operations, but also they're the right thing to do and shouldn't be seen as, oh, it's a burden. Here's one more thing we've got to go comply with. It's like, no, it's like, it's, it's like diversity and inclusion. It's like the way we do business is as important as the business we do. Very true. And to me, it almost seems there's a definite linkage between diversity and inclusion, ESG, and quote unquote purpose. And it's, it almost feels to me that the ESG and diversity and inclusion, if you get that right, purpose kind of pops out of that to some degree, right? Like if you're, because I think what it means to me is that those other components are actual behaviors. Like I'm employing a more diverse and inclusive workforce. I'm getting more com- people in the mix for conversations around decision-making. And then the ESG component is actually tracking and measuring our impact on the environment, society at a whole, and at a governance level. And so like they're measuring the outcomes, in my opinion, of what maybe a purpose might or might or might or not be. And look, every, every company, I mean, companies are just assemblies of people and the vast and, and, and the overwhelming majority of those people want these things. They want, they want to do the right thing and they want the, where they work to be a place that does the right thing. And so even if for no other reason, then if you want to be able to hire good talent, then you need to make sure that your talent rep- represents them, uh, that your workforce represents them and that you hold certain things close and dear and true that your prospective employees do as well. Well, George, thanks for playing hot or not here on Marketing Today. <laughs> Did I win? Did I win? You, I, I don't know that anyone wins. We've only had one. But yes, you're the winner. You're the winner today. <laughs> These fabulous prizes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Before we transition, uh, the questions I ask everyone that comes on, I'm just curious, like you've seen a lot, at the roles that you've played on the operating side as well as now on the board side. And I'm sure talking to other um, folks that are on other boards. Any advice you have for CMOs right now? Yeah, I know there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of chatter out there. There's a lot of articles, a lot of people talking, a lot of uh, virtual sessions happening around the role of the CMO. And you're seeing things like big brands basically firing the CMO and not replacing the CMO. Others kind of rebranding what the CMO is. And ultimately, really, right now that the just the facts are, uh, you know, the tenure of CMOs is is shrinking. And yet the expectations are higher than ever on the CMO being able to drive business growth. And that at the same time, the landscape continues to shift quickly underfoot, right? So certainly the pandemic with its own share of of disruptions and changes. Technology, we talked about the insurgents that now your talent's leaving and you can't hold on to them. You've got, you know, the the, the FANG uh, platforms, right? Facebook and, and, and Amazon, Google, et cetera, right? are now controlling access to consumers and demanding sort of hefty paid media tithing if you want to keep your position you know, in search results and, and what have you. So that's what's going on. And so to me, first off, any CMO needs to think like a more like a chief growth officer. Now, I know that name has been bandied around and some people have just gone out and kind of relabeled CMO as CGO. It's like, it, but there's actually differences about the job. So I would say that any CMO needs to think like a chief growth officer. And that is, you really need to adopt a founder's mindset, not an operator's mindset. I have met 
marketers and even chief marketing officers who are more like they sit on top of a process and they turn the handle on the crank. It's like, you need to be more like a founder. So a chief growth officer would ask, what is the beach we need to seize? How has our customer's path to purchase changed? One that I think always sheds a lot of light, and this is one that I ask when I, you know, on, on boards is, who are we losing to and why? Notice what I didn't say is who's our competition, because people always trot out the same stale set of, you know, oh, it's these guys we've been competing with for the last 30 years, right? No, who are you losing to? Because you may find that there are functional substitutes. You may find that there are business models that you never saw coming. So Marriott have considered Airbnb a competition. No, for years, they didn't think that they were part of the competition until they started actually losing share to them, right? When they evolved from futons and tree houses to something that is basically a much more like a hotel and B&B type experiences, right? You know, and, and, and now who are they losing to? Well, they're, you know, any, any travel company right now is not losing to an insurgent. They're losing to Zoom. So who are you losing to and why? And then as a growth officer, you've got to, so depending on the answer to those questions about, okay, the customer's path has changed and we're losing to these guys for these reasons, then you got to ask, okay, well, then the operating model that we have, the one we know and love and hold dear and have used for the last 20 years, is it still fit for purpose? Or does something have to change about that? So that would be one piece of advice to, to, uh, to a CMO, think like a chief growth officer. The other thing that you're really going to need are going to be allies who share your vision. You've got to find them within the company. I use the term hunt as a pack. Those who see what needs to be done the way you do, you need to bring them in and collaborate intensely to drive your growth agenda, right? And that might be an IT, it might be a product, it might be an operations or sales or distribution. I would say yes to all of the above, uh, which then also means, and this sometimes, you know, usually when you're, when you're in a chief level position, you know how to do this, but not always really mastering leading through influence. Because as a marketer in particular, you're really not going to have control of about 80% of what needs to be executed for a good go-to-market strategy. But you can definitely shape and guide others towards that destination. And uh, Oh, and here's another piece of advice I got. Everyone in marketing should be trained on how to win the algorithm. What I mean by that is we're often trained in media, we're trained in the four Ps, you know, we're, 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 um, we're trained in, I mean, in, in creative uh, advertising, et cetera. I mean, winning consumer share used to be a game of reach plus creative advertising, you know, with sticking power, plus repetition, so you can remember it, and then physical availability, which is whatever you're selling, make sure you can find it anywhere, right? You can go into the local 7-Eleven and it's there, for instance. Now, all that's still true, but today it's algorithms that determine whether we are seen and that determine the choices that our consumers ultimately make. So it used to be you could, in the physical world, contract this stuff in, you know, JBPs and in media placements and in-store displays. But a lot of these decisions are made now before people even walk into a store, for instance. So it's essentially kind of moving. You kind of move from it's like store order, like where you sit on a shelf in the store has been replaced by sort order. And all marketers need to develop practical experience in how you win algorithms on each of the major platforms because they all do it differently. That's where things are won and lost. And I would say related to that, sorry, this is longer than I thought it was going to be. Uh, <laughs> any good. CMO 
and the people who report to them, they have to become masters of turning data into actionable insight. It's easy to say, and everyone likes to feel they can check the box on that, but there is so much more opportunity. And frankly, that's, that's, that's where the future of, of marketing resides. Yes, still creative, of course, but you bring data and creative and then reach on these massive global reach platforms, right? And that's how you get to relevancy and that's how you get to building memory structure. And the nods to uh, to things that we've talked about on this show before, like physical availability, mental availability, memory structures, all those good things. That's very good. Very good. Well, great advice. Full stop. So what I want to do is switch gears and, and um, go through a series of questions I normally ask everyone that comes on. We'd like to get to know you. We know you've wrestled with an octopus. You've driven crazy transformations at big companies. Has there been an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? So I've been with some startups and I've been in a variety of situations where really it came down to there was every reason in the world that something shouldn't work and something shouldn't be successful. And sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't. But teaching you persistence, I think, has been really important for me. And I think that that came through. In spades, now, now, you know, even just thinking about the uh, the transformation experience at you know that big companies like like Marriott, it taught me also that actually strategy can be pretty easy and pretty straightforward, right? It's a pretty rational process. Execution, so strategy is easy. Execution is hard. Changing how people think and work can be almost impossible, but it's not. What you really have to do is you've got to get the human factors right. It's not just the logic. It's not just the rationale, right? That's the left brain. Um, you can win minds, but if you don't win hearts, uh, you're going no place. So it has taught me that really failure and pushback are the path to success. It, it, it's not the end of it. It's like you encounter failure and oh, that's that's it. And that's how most corporate cultures are set up too. It's like, oh, that failed. Okay, sideline this whole thing. In fact, sideline that team, right? Fail, it's, it's in this, and, I, and it's as reiterated in startup world and it's reiterated in the things that I've, I've seen at companies large and small. And it is the fact that failure is the default mode, not the exception. What's different is, is what you learn from it and how you change your approach. It is not a path of success builds upon success upon success. It's like, it's not that at all. And you talk to any entrepreneur and you talk to any CEO who's had to, who's had to build something and they will, they will say the same thing. So it is, it teaches you persistent when you know you're always leaning into a headwind. Be courageous when everybody wants to run the other way and just kind of know uh, and, and that when you're trying to lead a change, something you really believe in, you believe in the purpose, you believe in the vision, you are going to drag the company there if you have to. You will wind up with more arrows in your back than medals on your chest, but you will know that you got the company where it needed to be. I love that. It harkens back to kind of stoic philosophy. I don't know if you're familiar with that, like, but um, Marcus Aurelius, the ancient Romans, and a, a more modern book is a, is called Obstacle is the Way by uh, Ryan Holiday. See, now you're already adding to my reading list again. All right. So I, now I, I got to go through that yeah. one too. All right. Obstacle is yeah. the way. But it's very, very similar to your point. Like the, the fact that the, just like the title of the book is, the obstacle is the way, right? That's the, the obstacle is change. 
So anyway, well, so what advice would you give your younger self if you're starting this journey all over again? You know, I guess maybe this is a it buried in what I in some of what I just said, but I I, I think about I used to be highly introverted uh, when I was a kid, uh, very quiet and all. And I think probably like any anybody, right? You have a certain you have a certain fearfulness about being wrong, about failing, or what have you. And I guess my advice to my younger self would probably be a couple things. It would be first of all, care less about criticism. All progress comes with haters. And the more important the change, the more you're going to feel the the rising temperature and the fear and more haters will come out of the, out of the woodwork. You don't want to let them paralyze you if you know that what you're doing is, is the right thing and the good thing. And I guess similar to that, you always want to wring as much risk out of, out of the choices you make as you can. You want as much certainty as you can. And this actually becomes paralyzing in, in itself. And so I, I try to remind myself that, that it's better to be 70% right and first than 100% right and last. Yeah, you can really overanalyze. And look, we've all been there, like in, in companies and marketed, marketers suffer, suffer from this acutely. Anything they bring to the table where they want to go pursue this strategy or, or that plan comes with a barrage of questions, all geared at wringing every ounce of risk out of the proposition. And often it boils down to uh, inherently, innately what people are thinking is, but what if it fails? And the answer has to be, but what if it succeeds? Is there a topic that you think marketers should be learning more about or that you're trying to learn more about yourself? I guess I'll go back to um, something I said before, which is I mentioned winning the algorithm because you can pull out all the stops and do the most bang up job on all the things we're used to uh, marketing being able to do well. But the gatekeeper now is an algorithm. The gatekeeper on if that even gets seen, if you're if you're, you know, wonderful ad or your brand or your message or your offer or your product and service, if that even gets seen now is really determined by an algorithm. So you've got to know how to work Similarly, and I think marketing is, is, has made a lot of strides here, um, but more is needed that every person should have a degree of proficiency around leveraging data and data tools to get at, at really actionable insights, right? Because again, it's the data that's going to help determine if you're going to be visible or, or invisible. And then there's, always, there's been so much advancement made and even a Nobel Prize or two awarded when you get into things like behavioral science. You know, there, when I was taking marketing at business school, there was really nothing about it. it was four P's, but really didn't get under the hood about why do why do people behave the way they behave? <laughs> why do they do the why do they think they're being fully rational beings when these choices clearly show they're not? And Daniel Kahneman did all groundbreaking work on just that thing. So there's a lot out there now. And I would encourage anybody marketing to learn more around behavioral science. Sometimes there's things like neuromarketing and you know whatever it is. But the fact is, it is getting at how do people actually, how does the wetware in their skull actually function? What is it that truly triggers motivations and shapes behavior? Marketers need to understand that because marketers ultimately are ones who shape motivation. Stepping back a little bit further, are there any brands, companies, or causes you follow you think other people should be taking notice of? That's an interesting one. And I'll, I'll tell you, what, I mean, so I, I have a, so I have a personal bias. I have a personal bias when it comes to brands that um, I have a propensity to really follow what I would say are sort of industrial model 4.0, which is 
massively scalable business models that have network economics that drive marginal cost down with each transaction that leverage data and intelligence and AI and ML right at the core of the business. It drives the decisions as opposed to it's an outcome of the decisions. And then they have like multiple ways of making money. They can make them on the transaction description, on fees, on commissions, on ad, their own ad networks, on data as a service, right? And basically they're solving a compelling basket of these friction points for a very large addressable market. They become the scaffolding upon which other companies build their business. So in China, Alibaba. And despite what the bouncing around of the stock price because of you know some of the things that have been happening and sort of the, the you know, between between the premier and between the CEO and what have you, the fact is Alibaba has a business model. It has it has data sitting at the core of that with Alimama. It's got scale. It's got financial system, its own financial system. It monetizes in so many different ways. Uh, and I, you know, I do a lot with with the CPG industry. And when I go into like an Alibaba Huma grocery store, I, I tell I tell CEOs, I say, if you want to see what the future of CPG and retail looks like, go to China today and walk into one of those stores. And I won't go into the details, but the things that they do with real-time data, real-time supply chain, et cetera, is amazing. Another one like that is Shopify. Uh, and like any big company, right, they have uh, both uh, people who love them and people who hate them, right? It's the, it's the adage about you always have haters. But the fact is they're building a platform. They're building sort of a counter to, to Amazon that even the smallest operation can get second day fulfillment of they're making a scarf or a coin purse or whatever it is. I don't know. So Shopify is another one of those. Full disclosure, it's also, you know, I, I, I recently left what I called semi-retirement and joined a startup called Onriva uh, this year because they're bringing a lot of these attributes to the travel industry. But that's still behind the curtain. You just got to hear it first. <laughs> Love it. Well, I'll definitely check them out as well and then keep them, keep following the developments there. Well, last question for you. What do you feel like is the largest opportunity or threat to marketers today? I'd have to say first off is the pandemic and not just for the health reasons, but just COVID and the lockdown has, has just really kind of changed some of the math for marketers. I mean, people are shopping differently. They're not going into stores. We're not seeing, they're not going into see like trade and aisle promotions. They're spending a lot more time on that tiny screen on mobile. They are experimenting with new brands. So they're starting to date around, right? They're displacing old favorites. So when you've got, because of supply chain from the pandemic, you get stock outs of their favorites. It means they, yeah, they start to date others. And so, you know, I think it's something like over 35% say they've tried a new brand in the last six months. and some are liking what they find and they're sticking with it. Meanwhile, add into that, right? The whole reach and media channel landscape is in complete upheaval. So you know, traditionally, right, you had these guaranteed high reach, high viewership channels like you know, network TV and live sports, right? Those are shrinking. Meanwhile, you've got streaming and new OTT options are growing. Cookies are under attack, right? So while the bang companies are trying to create these walled gardens that are going to, as marketers, hobble our ability to track audiences across platforms. And then basically, like in the case of Google, now as they shift away for you ultimately from cookies, basically saying to advertisers, you know, the equivalent of, uh, yeah, open your mouth and close your eyes. And then Apple, of course, has come up and delivered a, a, you know, a brilliant one-two punch, but it's like, you know, the, the, the do not track, right? Don't track me across apps or sites. And it's sent a torpedo right into the broadside of, of, of Facebook and created a de facto 
Apple ad platform that's grown, what is it, 58% already? And then, of course, an ad supply chain that's rife with fraud and taking a huge bite out of our already scarce media dollar uh, capacity. So that's that all sort of rolls off and is amplified by the pandemic, and marketers are having to deal with that. The other is I, I said algorithms again. That's the gatekeeping force is around algorithms. I already talked a bit about uh, a bit about that, but I would say you know when you look at just just those two things, right? Because there's other threats and opportunities, yes, but just those two things, you got that. And then meanwhile, you as a marketer are also being commanded by the CEO to say you know go grow the business or else. So apart from that, the marketer's job is easy. <laughs> Famous last words. I love it. <laughs> George, it's been, I mean, it's been really enlightening having you on. So thank you so much for, for sharing your stories about transformation, lessons learned, the board. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and, and don't wrestle any octopuses. You heard it here first. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with support from my team and podcast editors, sound engineers, and writers at Share Your Genius. Find them at shareyourgenius.com. If you're new to marketing today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners. You can contact me on marketingtodaypodcast.com. There, you will also find complete show notes, links to what was discussed in the episode today, and you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.